Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Helena Bottomiller-Evich. She's the founder and editor-chief of Food Fix, which is this really awesome new online publication about food policy, both in D.C. and beyond. And because of our work in hunger, we've gotten to know her a little bit and started talking to her. And once I got to know her, I was like, hey, would you please come on the podcast? And she graciously said yes. So, Helena, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, um, how does one sort of choose to sort of say, okay, I am going to focus on this one extremely important but kind of narrow field and make a living doing it? It's a great question. I get this question a lot. I think, you know, I've covered food and agriculture policy for more than a decade now. And, you know, the number one question I get is like, did you grow up on a farm? Like what, how, why, why are you doing this? Right. Um, I, you know, I think I've always been personally interested in, in food policy, My grandpa um, had a produce market in southwest Pennsylvania when I was growing up, so I spent a lot of time working with him. So I think at a young age, I was kind of interested, but I fell into journalism. You know, I studied government. I've I've really had a winding career path um, that led me to help Politico launch food and ag coverage back in 2013, which is when, you know, Michelle Obama was doing Let's Move and there was a ton of like national attention on food. So I think I kind of fell into food policy journalism at a good time, right? People actually were talking about it. It was mainstream. And here I am more than 10 years later. And, you know, it is a narrow topic in some ways, but it also gets wide very quickly. I mean, we're going to talk about education today. Yep. You get to cover the environment. You get to yep. cover, you know, the economy right. and Tech, labor, taxes. Yeah. I mean, it quickly, you realize the tentacles reach out really far. And I think that's why I've been able to stay on this beat so long as I, I haven't gotten bored of it. Right. Well, right? It, it, it is just, so, it's something yeah. that we all do. It's like when I invest in startups, one of the things we look for is, is this product or service something that consumers will want to use, you know, multiple times a day, right? People eat multiple times a day if they can, right? So like eat, this is one of those absolute constants in humanity. And even if there's not as much public attention on food policy as there's on, say, abortion, it, it actually impacts all of us all of the time. And so it, it couldn't be more critical. Um, so, you know, you, you've kind of been at this now for about a decade. You've won two James Beard awards for features on nutrition and science. Uh, what did you write about that won the awards and kind of how did that lead you to this path? Yeah, for the James Beard awards, which again, I had people coming up to me in the newsroom going, I didn't know you cooked. (laughs) (laughs) The James Beard uh, awards also have media and book awards. Um, but, uh, the two, the two stories I, I won for that were, um, one was about, looking at how increasing um, carbon dioxide, uh, you know, CO2 in the, in the atmosphere actually uh, reduces um, some of the nutrient levels in our food. And it's this weird thing that, you know, scientists have been aware of for a long time, but I find no one talks about, even though, you know, it is one of the things that we probably should be keeping an eye on in terms of, you know, how we mitigate and adapt to climate change. Um, so I did a, a, a big story on that called The Great Nutrient Collapse that went viral, I don't know, in like 2015 or something. Um, and then the other story was about how little the federal government invests in nutrition science and really mapping out like how astonishing li- uh, astonishingly little we spend on nutrition at NIH Yep. Um, which is the multi-billion dollar, you know, research arm, very important. And we really just mapped out that this is like one of those issues, you know, you're totally right that we relate to and we um, 
we come to multiple times a day, something like nutrition, and yet is often overlooked in the policy realm. There aren't big lobbies that push for right. massive funding. Right. There just isn't a political infrastructure set up to build sort of the research base that we all wish we had, right? We're yeah. all tired of seeing these stories that are like, coffee's good one day, coffee's bad the next day. We just saw front page New York Times article over the weekend that actually any amount of alcohol is can be harmful. And it's like, wait, we've been hearing that a glass of red wine a day is, is healthy. So I think people are exhausted by the confusion, the lack of research. And so we really looked at that and it was um, a fascinating story. There's a push now to create a National Institute of Nutrition at NIH. Yeah. Not gonna say anytime I mean, soon, but there's a push. No, but it makes sense because you know, whatever we're not spending on the front end on learning, we're spending a hundred X on the back end on, on treating, right? So I mean this is sort of the argument I think you and me and all the food advocates have, which is this is actually one of the most economically efficient, highest ROI things you could possibly do. Um, so, but you know, you're right. Like one of the reasons that, that at a Tusk Philanthropies we started funding and running these campaigns is there's not really a political infrastructure for hunger. There are groups and they're really lovely people and they're well-intentioned, but as someone who spent a lifetime in politics, there's almost an inverse relationship between how well-intentioned you are and how good you are at politics. Um, and as a result, uh, you know, bills that I think, you know, are do passable in a lot of places, you know, didn't move um, until you started applying a, a political approach to it. Um, you know, why do you think it is that this issue just somehow never has the urgency behind it that it feels like, you know, whether it's border security or guns or, you know, Medicare for all, like so many other things seem to be have an easier time getting attention. I think part of it is that we have had the great fortune in the U.S. of being able to kind of take food for granted. Um, it's always there, you know, and, and until COVID hit, like you didn't really ever see bare shelves or things that were out consistently. And so I think it, there's kind of a complacency that comes with that. Like, it's just there, you know, we spend relatively little of our income on food compared to other countries. And so I think that's part of it. And and a lot of the food insecurity issues are, are pretty hidden. Unless they directly affect you, you might not realize, you know, you can read all the stats in the world. So I think, um, I think it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. And um, I, I do see some increasing interest. I mean, there's some um, some voices coming out of you know Silicon Valley and tech world that are are a lot, really concerned about nutrition and food, yeah. um, and that's kind of a new um, narrative that I'm seeing. But uh, it, it's one of the things that's puzzled me. I mean, I can never understand why newsrooms don't cover uh, food like a real beat. It's a trillion dollar industry, so even if you don't care about the the health impact or the you know. The, the, the consequences of it, it's still a trillion dollar industry. Right. And I think it's weird that, you know, a newspaper would never not cover like finance or energy, yeah. <laughs> but food, it's like, well, that's weird to cover. Right. So, so this is the hill yeah. I'll die on. So look, yeah. look, I'll, I'll give you a thesis, which may or may not be right, which is it. So the whole premise of this podcast and pretty much all of the work that, that we do here, whether it's in venture capital or politics or, or philanthropy is every policy output is shaped by political input, which means Every elected official solely cares about re-election and nothing else, and every single decision they make is based on whether or not it will help them get re-elected, and that's it. And that means that issues that voters really care about and the people who actually show up to vote in primaries, the issues that they vote on become really significant to elected officials across the board, and issues that everyone kind of agrees on but doesn't really seem to motivate an actual voter behavior 
become kind of irrelevant. So people don't really vote on hunger. The people who need the help the most tend to be sort of the, the least likely voters in, in low turnout elections. And then because of that, if politicians aren't taking it seriously or talking about it, reporters in some ways take their cues from, from the people they're covering. And as a result, there's just this sort of like miasma kind of across the board um, because there is not an effective political force behind hunger, even though the reality is, if if most of us listening to this podcast didn't have access to food, it would become the number one issue immediately, right? Very quickly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, you know, I think during during the pandemic, we did sort of stress test the food system, right? And we saw that there are some vulnerabilities that I think a lot of people were not aware of. And I think the, the pandemic has actually increased awareness and interest in food in a way, not just looking at how vulnerable supply chains are, but also... You know, we saw a lot of news stories about how vulnerable um, food and farm workers were uh, consistently, and they were considered essential, and yet they have very few labor protections, and yep. um, a large portion are undocumented. And so I think the public kind of got uh, a little bit of a look behind the curtain in a way that maybe they hadn't, and and I'm seeing some, some ripple effects from that as well. I mean, not to mention diet-related diseases um, uh, increase the risk of severe outcomes in COVID. So... Uh, there's a lot of connection to be had there. Yeah. But it feels like in some ways the the food world um, policy is kind of split into two different directions and they do converge, but but they've kind of become their own thing, right? So there's hunger, right? And mm -hmm. you have all these groups like Share Our Strength or FARC or us or whoever it is that are fo focused specifically on how do we put more food in the mouths of people who need it? And then there's nutrition, right, which is how do we make sure that both people who don't have food but the country in general is eating better so that they will be healthier and safer and it's better for the environment. Um, why are these two things separated when it feels like they really should be one and the same? It is one of the great tension points in this, in this world. And, you know, I have tried uh, to understand it over the years, and I, I've become convinced that it's sort of a – it's like a historical breakdown that just won't die, right? And I think it comes from a deep sense of like the anti-hunger community having to sort of fight for every advance in the safety net, right? Every expansion had to be fought very, very bitterly for. Yeah. And so this idea that you open up to talking about quality or nutrition just feels like a distraction, right? From just getting people access to food, right? Whether it's increased food stamp or SNAP benefits or school meals, um, there just seems to be this, um, this resistance to opening up to talking about nutrition. And it also comes from, I think, a strong belief that uh, low-income people don't need to be told what to eat, that that's patronizing, um, and that it sort of uh, infringes on, on their you know, right to, to choose what they want to eat. So I think everyone comes with some really good arguments and some really good intentions, and yet it really is a tension point. And we saw this going into the White House conference on food yeah. um, in the fall. There was a lot of fighting behind the scenes about how much that conference should focus on hunger versus nutrition. And I think your average person hears that and they're like, why is there a tension there, right? right. Like those are those are the same. Those are inextricably linked. There shouldn't be a tension there, but, but there is politically for yeah. sure. So um – it does feel like at the state level, there seems to be, and maybe it's because of, of what COVID exposed, 
some acceptance, mainly among Democrats, but some Republicans too, um, that programs like universal school meals are really worthwhile, right? A, because morally it's, it's the imperative thing to do, but B, it just ultimately makes your schools and your healthcare system a lot more efficient and effective. As a result, so we've seen, you know, California and Maine have have done permanent universal school meals. States like the Vermont and Nevada have kind of advanced at least year by year. And you know, as you know, we've got campaigns. You you, you broke the news on this in, in Connecticut, New York, North Carolina, and then to make Vermont permanent. Um, was there a reason why state lawmakers seem to be getting the message, and while Congress remains utterly clueless? I think the you know the view I see from states is. This overwhelming uh, realization, regardless of what your politics, you know, where you are on the spectrum of just realizing how much simpler it was to just do universal free school meals, to not have to do as much paperwork, sifting through, you know, income requirements, chasing down um, all of that paperwork. So I think it was simpler. It also makes the meal programs more financially stable. So there's a lot of financial dynamics here. So I think school leaders have been really vocal. And it's easier in some ways for state legislatures to work on this than it is, you know, the, the dynamics in um, Congress, even when Democrats were in control of the House and the Senate, just were not quite there to go universal, as you yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, in, in trying to get, you know, $10 billion added for federal funding for school meals, you know, I met with tons of Democratic senators, you know, wrote all kinds of checks and everything else. And everyone said, I will not be the 50th vote on Build Back Better, the infrastructure bill, the continuing resolution, unless that money for school meals is in there. And every single one of them bailed when, when the rubber hit the road. Um, and there's no accountability for it. Is there a point where, I mean, we're sort of debating internally. So our goal is universal school meals in all 50 states. We're seeing good traction. We know the next five to 10 are still going to be pretty brutal fights. Do you think there's sort of a tipping point where eventually it's like, okay, 12 states are doing this, and then we pick up 30 more relatively quickly? Or do you think we're just going to have to fight tooth and nail for all 50 of them? That's a really good question. I mean, you know, I've been really surprised by just how much momentum this has had. I mean, I was... I just looked, I think it was the, a day or two, my home state of Washington State, they are now, have, they have a full campaign and push yep. to, to do universal. And I almost can't keep up with how yep. many states. I mean, I think Minnesota, Virginia, yep. I mean, there's a lot happening. You know, now which of those will actually make it to the finish, you know, we'll see. But, um, I, you know, there's a lot of momentum. I think, you know, the problem with doing it state by state is that, Every state has different political dynamics, and as you well know, can yep. require different levels of resources. And uh, you know, they also have different budgetary situations. I think the states that have you know budget surpluses are going to be a lot easier, yeah. <laughs> right? There's just money to be had there. Um, I think the 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 macro dynamic here is the more states you get to do this, and you get legislatures to sort of pick up the tab on a lot of these it becomes just a less expensive thing to do nationally. And I think that makes it an easier sell in DC, right? You just have the number, the way it works out in terms of how CBO would score it, and it just becomes less of a big change. So I think as, as more of these big states go, like what you've got going in New York will be big, um, I think that will help tip it. But it is very possible that you're going to have to go in a lot of states yeah. before, or the, before Congress the very, steps in. Totally. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, if you look at all the states that have either done it permanently or temporarily or at least seriously considering it, they're all blue or at best purple states, right? So one of the reasons that we're doing North Carolina this year is I, I don't know if we can pass it, but 
we need to pass it in some red state that then gives other state legislators in red states cover to move forward on it. And it's going to be probably a really expensive multi-year fight. But if you don't start it, you, you, you can never win it. Um, it. You know, there's always that sort of what's the matter with Kansas sort of question of like, you know, just as many poor rural white people need school meals and SNAP and everything else as, you know, urban people of color. Um what does it take for – I mean, I think legislators actually know this about their constituents. They just think that somehow they're going to be punished politically for wanting to expand the social safety net. What does it take to reconcile that? Yeah, I think this is a really good question. And um, You do see a lot of backlash to the safety net among those who very much – uh, need the safety net or maybe don't understand that they are on the safety net. Maybe they don't see Medicaid as the safety net. Um, one of the things I think so interesting is looking at the example of Colorado. So in Colorado, they put a ballot initiative, you know, they actually had about, they had school, universal school meals on the ballot and it was a slight tax increase, I think on like households over maybe 300,000 or something. So it was a tax increase on the ballot and it passed overwhelmingly and they had actually pretty good support among Republicans and also rural counties. Like you had rural counties who maybe, you know, historically do not like government expansions, tax increases, you know, they don't want to make government programs bigger. That's part of their ethos, but they were supporting this. And I think part of it was the message around, you know, tying school meals to local economic development. So sourcing from local farms, you know, trying to really focus on nutritional quality and I think that is one of those things that really appeals to the, especially the far left and the far right, right? Yeah. Focusing on uh, less processed meals, more scratch cooking. There's a sort of a sweet spot there where I think you get some of those voters who maybe don't like SNAP or they don't want people to buy what they want or they don't like the child tax credit, but they're like, oh, healthy school meals that support a local farmer in Colorado. You know, I can get behind that. that yeah. That's not a bridge we, too far. Been, totally, I think what they did totally. was super interesting. Yeah, we've been working hard to get Farm Bureau endorsements for, for our bills in all the states because it does create a certain amount of sort of cover both for rural and, and for Republican lawmakers. And will and will they do it? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to step on anyone's news, but but I think New York, we already know, has endorsed. I know Lisa Quigley, who runs Solving Hunger for Us, is working really hard in North Carolina right now. Interesting, and so, yeah. I hope so. It, that's, it's, that's, it's, a, that's an alliance, though, that... You know, I mean, it's similar to the Farm Bill Alliance, yeah, really. Exactly. It's similar where you have ag and, and anti-hunger um, in lockstep. And look, the Farm Bill is one of the few reliably bipartisan bills left in Congress. And I think that's part of the reason why. Yeah. So you've done a lot of reporting around the FDA. A lot of it's sort of been very critical. Um, in order to fix the FDA, what needs to happen? Does it need to be broken up? I have reported that the FDA has a very uh, dysfunctional foods division, right? So um, this is the division charged with overseeing 80% of the food supply. They have, um, they're having power struggles. It's really hard to get anything done. Um, they're struggling to even set like limits for heavy metals and baby food. I mean, things that I think most consumers would see as sort of no-brainers for yeah. FDA to tackle. Um, so I've done a lot of reporting on that agency and what um, what bad shape it's in, frankly. And that has spawned a lot of pressure on the agency to figure out how to have better leadership or kind of get its act together. Um, we're, I think we'll see in the new Congress with Republicans controlling the House, I think we'll see a little bit more oversight of FDA. Some of that will be 
purely partisan. And some of that will be lawmakers going, wait a minute. You know, FDA has fought against regulating CBD, which is like a Wild West market. Yeah. Um, where a lot of food companies would like to jump into that, but they're like, there's no rules here. Like, this isn't right. a good idea for us. And FDA has just really resisted that. I think part of it's funding, part of it's a culture of sort of saying no. Um, there's a lot of things at play, but the, the bottom line is the status quo is not working. I think people are really shocked to hear that. Like, at, food is not a high priority at FDA. FDA also regulates drugs and medical right. devices and vaccines and all the things. I mean, they regulate like a quarter of the economy. I mean, it's, or maybe 20%. It's a, a big chunk. Um, so there's a lot of focus and discussion on that agency. Um, and I think we'll see what happens. Uh, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf is supposed to unveil a new vision of the foods divi um, division within the next couple of weeks. Right. So When you we'll were see. at the, the White House you know, conference on hunger, were you sort of a lone voice in the wilderness saying we need something separate to focus on food, or was that kind of the consensus? And if it was, did the White House notice? Well, I think the White House has definitely noticed that FDA is having struggles, right? So the infant formula crisis yeah. where we're having shelves that are bare has, I think, really kept this in the spotlight, um, although to FDA's credit, or to be fair to them, they actually have no oversight over supply chain. That's like not what we asked them to do. Um, but their handling of a, a recall and infant illnesses and deaths leading into that was very slow, right? And so there's been a lot of questions about the agency's response on that and also how rigorous their inspections are. I mean, they're doing fewer food safety inspections with more resources. Um, and I think Congress is sort of looking at this agency going, what is going on, right? Like, what what's going on? Um, the, so I think the White House is very aware of this. and But FDA wasn't as much a part of the um, White House Food Conference as USDA was. Um, FDA has some pieces of the policy, like they want to do um, front-of-pack labeling, so trying to help consumers tell how healthy a food is by looking at the front-of-pack. This is a very controversial idea in the food industry, they don't want like stoplights or stars or anything, you know, they don't, they don't want that. So we'll have to see where that goes. I think we're many, 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 many years away from that because it takes FDA a long time to, to do, do anything. anything. Right. The, the vaccine was sort of the one thing that everyone's like, oh, they did such a great job on this. But it was like, it was the exception to, to the rule. Yes. So, yes. so a lot of my listeners, you know, are, are people in tech and venture. And so ag tech is something that, you yeah. know, is, is interesting to a lot of us and, the approach from the private sector side to from the, the startups, the founders, the scientists, the VCs is a little bit of, hey, look, it seems like it's possible to kind of recreate all kinds of different foods with plant-based materials or something else. Let's basically fund as many of these things as seem feasible and then see what sticks from a, a consumer standpoint and an economic standpoint. You know, based on what you've seen out of the ag tech world, where are you hopeful that it can make a real difference around nutrition and climate and hunger? And which efforts do you think, like, I don't know, fake mayonnaise or whatever, like, this is just a waste of time? Fake mayonnaise, yeah. Um, you know, it's in some ways, it's it's really early. I mean, some of these... Um, some of these sectors have longer runways than other, right? So the cell cultured meat, cell-based meat, whatever we're going to call it, which is literally growing animal cells um, without having to slaughter the animal. Um, some of those companies like Upside Foods in the Bay Area, I mean, they, I think, have 
the financing to really, really figure out whether or not this can scale, right? The big question, there's, there's a lot of things you can do, but what can scale and be like economically feasible and competitive with meat is a different question. And so I think we're in this mode of seeing what, what can we actually um, bring to mass market? You know, you can, you can bring um, cell-cultured, cell-based, or some people call it lab-grown meat to, to high-end restaurants. Like, you can make enough to do that right now today. That's not science fiction. But it's very expensive. And there are still a lot of questions about how you scale this. Um, the FDA actually did um, just approve a chicken product that's um, cell-based, cell-cultured. We haven't decided on a name, so that's why I'm using multiple. Um, but, you know, even with an approval we have no timeline to seeing that on market because of these scale issues. And I think that's something that follows for other technologies, precision fermentation, um, which is where you basically use yeast to like grow different proteins. Like they can actually grow identical dairy proteins that can be made into ice cream and milk products or processed um, cheeses. So think about like the powder you see in a mac and cheese box. Um, so there's a lot of really exciting possibility. Um, but I'm really hesitant around hype, you know, where does the hype meet the reality of getting these things out there? And I think, you know, a lot of these are like time will tell, right? They're either going to figure it out or they're not. Um, but there's so much going on. And one of the things I'm seeing in DC is a lot of these companies are starting to show up here to lobby the Hill or yep. to work with, you know, sometimes they need to work with FDA. And that's been a really interesting dynamic because, Food and agriculture, as you might imagine, has had like a lot of the same players here yeah. for like a hundred years, right? <laughs> the dairy lobby, the wheat guys, the soy, you know, they're all here. Corn, Farm Bureau. Um, but now we're seeing a lot of new players. We're seeing the the cell cultured meat people. They have their own trade association. Now it's small, but you know, they have their own. Um, and there's there's even like an insect farming group because Big players like ADM and Cargill and others are working on scale around some of this stuff for feed for animal feed. So it's an interesting time to to watch it all, but I'm not sure I'm the best equipped to figure out like what is actually gonna work. I mean, some of this also comes down to consumers. We're seeing right. plant-based sales kind of be lackluster now. I think once the initial excitement wore off and there's a lot of questions about where that industry is headed and plant-based is a lot easier to execute um, than some of these other technologies. Right. So, you know, I think one of the challenges perhaps is the big established food industries, sugar, corn, milk, have massive subsidies, right? So it's it, they're not just getting you know, private sector money for development and distribution and creation of everything else, the U.S. taxpayer is also subsidizing it. Do you think kind of the plant-based or cell-based food can ever get to scale without that? And if so, you know, what does it take to dismantle the sugar lobby, the cattle lobby, whatever it is? That's an interesting question. I mean, they're going to have to get there without subsidies in terms of making the economics work. That said, there's a real push to get more research funding. You know, I think there there will be more traction on that, you know, getting USDA researchers to work on some of these questions. And that's another form of subsidy or sort of, you know, it's another form of the government trying to support an industry. We have 
a whole research division of the USDA that's helped advance agriculture, like, you know, since Lincoln, right? Like this is a, a big part of our our country's, I think, economic success is being able to figure out these technologies and scale them. So I think we'll see more uh, research support, but I don't see like mass subsidy happening anytime soon. You know, some of this is, um, especially around alternative proteins, gets politically very controversial with especially the ranching uh, community. So cattle ranchers hate uh, the entire idea of quote, fake meat or alternative, right? They feel this as an assault. This is frankenfood. It's ridiculous. But some of the bigger meat companies like Tyson are absolutely investing in these alternatives, right? They are making bets. They are um, trying to figure out which of these technologies might scale. And so you don't see as much animosity coming from the big companies. You see, you see the animosity coming from like the grassroots producers who are like, F this, right? right? And you can kind of understand their emotional sure. response to it, right? This is their livelihood. They might be many generations into this and they just, they think it's yeah, a terrible idea. And yeah. one of the challenges I think that sort of the whole alternative food industry faces is kind of they're politically vulnerable on both sides, right? So you have, let's just say that the, the Cattlemen's Association is traditionally much more Republican, but at the same time, the whole anti-GMO crowd in Vermont or whatever at the same, you know, mm -hmm. is far left, and they also have a problem with all Absolutely. of this. Absolutely. And so yeah, it's, no. yeah. The left and the right meet over a lot of these food issues, especially around um, processing or technology. Um and you see a lot of the same folks. It's, it's actually one of the reasons why you'll see um, bipartisan agreement to work on things like small-scale meat processing capacity. Like that's like a, a Chelly Pingree and Massey special, right? Like where you have conservatives and, and liberals getting together. Um, so it, I think, you know, there's no question that these technologies, they just inspire backlash, right? People um, – are skeptical. They don't like the sound of it. There's kind of an anti-natural um, narrative there. Uh, but we'll have to see. I think a lot of it depends on how it's branded, what it's called. I think it will also depend on the price point. Like I think if the price point's below meat, I think that's a totally different equation uh, versus if you're trying to sell it at a premium and you're trying to convince them what's, you know, what's the benefit of this, right? Is it climate? Are we selling it on a climate benefit? Are we selling it on a health benefit? Like, is it the animal welfare benefit? Like, what is it that consumers will pay for? And I think we're just too early to know what right. what that is. Right. Yeah. So you're going. let's say you're going to the grocery store later today, and I said you have to buy three alternative food products. What would you get? So alternative food products. Um, Cell-based, plant, but just something that's not traditional. Well, you can't buy cell-based yet, or I definitely right. would buy that because I haven't tried it yet. Okay, I have not tried it yet. I've seen it in person, but it's very expensive still to get. Um, you know, I think that you know, it's incredible how many uh, alternatives there now are in the dairy section. I mean, you can get like coconut yogurt and, and almond cheese. I mean, there's just so many things to try. Um, so I think there's a lot to try there. There's also a lot of innovation around like better or healthier, more high fiber, high protein pastas. Like you can get boxed macaroni and cheese that has 
a lot more fiber, a lot more protein, a lot more, you know, vitamins and minerals that taste like Kraft mac and cheese. And to me, that's like a processed food. You know, it's for sure a processed food, but it's, you know, it's, it's a processed food improvement, right? Like if you have a busy yeah. parent and they're just trying to get a, a quick dinner on the table. So those are the kinds of things I look for. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot more snack options now. You can get like you know, cauliflower crisps. Like you, there's just so many more options consumers have now, even in like your giant or Safeway store, there's just an incredible amount of options. And a lot of that has been because of this boom in venture going into food nag. You know, it's not just the technology companies, but also snacks and bars. And, you know, I think the food industry is really tough, but there's been a lot of investment, a lot of innovation. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say on the dairy side, though, which people do not realize this, though, even though we're drinking almond milk and whatever as a country, like we've kind of abandoned fluid milk, we are consuming more dairy than ever, like record amounts because we're eating yogurt and eating cheese and ice cream. And so I just want to note that for my dairy listeners. Is that good or are, bad? You may not have dairy listeners, but I do. But yeah. It, it's it's one we're, of those things we're wildly we're popular seeing, with the dairy. Side. Yeah. We're not seeing a reduction in meat and dairy, right? We're right. seeing an and, right? right? So people are not abandoning meat. They're not abandoning dairy. They're adding in. So they might be getting a Beyond Burger, but then they're also having a burger right. later in the week. So we have this like new consumer coming to the fore that's eating all the things, right? They're not necessarily, they're not vegan. They're not this, they're not that. So I think... Um, we have a ways to go before we see like where Gen Z is going to shake out yeah. on all this too. I so. will make one reference. I was in New Orleans with my kids this past weekend. My daughter's a vegetarian and we went to a place called the Parkway Tavern, which is kind of the one of the most famous po' boy sandwich shops in New Orleans. And she had the Beyond Meat po' boy and it was incredible. Like it was wow. far and away the, the, the best Beyond Meat sandwich probably ever made. So if was it deep fried? It, it was not deep fried, but they just had everything that they dress, you know, fried oysters yeah, with right. or catfish it or whatever had else. Had yeah. everything. And it just mm -hmm. basically, you know, uh, if if you are a vegetarian and you are in New Orleans, I would highly recommend that. Um, two, two final questions. One is, recording this from a, a bookstore that we own, what's your favorite food book? And it could be anything from food policy to Kitchen Confidential. Oh, man. Um... Right now I'm reading Marion Nestle's um, autobiography, Slow Cooked, and that's a really interesting – that's a really good book if anyone wants to, to read that. It's just about how – and Marion Nestle's like kind of like the NYU food policy sort of um, queen of this world. And it, I, I, I would recommend folks read that. just came right. out. Um, it's hard for me to pick a favorite. I know so many of these people. And frankly, I'm sent a million books that I that I don't read. There's so many good ones now that, I mean, when I got into this, it was like everyone talked about Omnivore's Dilemma and maybe you'd read Fast Food Nation from right. like many, many years before that. Yeah. But now there's just there's the food policy books that are coming out, they're coming out every week. There's so many good options. So we, we're kind of living in a Gold, um, golden age of food policy of, books. <laughs> Are you are you working on a book? Will will you write one? You know, I haven't written a book. I've got I get asked this all the time. I yeah, people are always trying to get me to write a book. I mostly haven't because of the the time the time commitment just hasn't made sense for me yeah. yet. Um the economics of books are very interesting, right? Uh 
you really make more money from like speaking and like doing that whole thing after. So it's it's kind of yeah. A weird it's it's gig. sort of right when I like when I wrote my book, it was kind of, I saw it as a loss leader, right? It, it got a lot of attention, and that helped me in venture capital and consulting, whatever it is. Much yeah. more so than whatever the book sold and, and made totally. or, or didn't yeah. didn't make. Um, the right, book well, industry is a is a weird one. Yeah, um, very. And, and now that we're in it, yes, it's weirder than I had expected. I thought it would be nothing. It's a, no industry once you're in it is nearly as straightforward or no. logical as you think it's going to be. Well, it's kind ever. of like gambling, right? Aren't they just kind of trying to pick like they only need to pick like a couple winners a year? Oh yeah. Well, by the way, that's also true of venture capital. Uh, <laughs> so all right. It's- very yeah, similar, ex- yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. a lot, that's why there's a lot of overlap. Our last question. So there's been a lot of attention around Noma, which was considered the most sort of famous and best restaurant in the world, and Copenhagen has announced that they're closing. It's getting a lot of attention. Um, does it matter? And if it does matter, why? No, it doesn't matter. Okay. I don't know. Actually, you know, I don't really know that much about Noma. Um, uh you know, I, I will say this. If you're charging what they were charging for dinner and you can't make the economics work, like, I I think you've got – I don't know how much that is applicable to the rest of the, of right. the restaurant industry. Did, did you um, see the movie The Menu? I, I have not been. I have not been. So I missed the Noma – yeah. Um, the, the trend, Noma, yeah. Well, the, the, have you eaten there? No, yeah. I've never been to Copenhagen, but um, you know, the Willows I, in the Pacific Northwest and Lummi Island also just closed. Um, it was like a you know thousand dollar a meal kind yeah. of place, and a lot of acclaim. And it turned out they had like labor abuses, and they right. were faking the ingredient. I mean, there's you pull back the curtain a little on some of these, and um, and the other thing is just like I have eaten like at Eleven Madison Park, which it times is sort of considered the number one restaurant in the world. And I've had the full on tasting thing. It's delicious. But you know what? Sometimes when a place is sort of too good and too fancy, it's kind of boring, right? Like the problem for me, Love Mass Park, it wasn't fun. Like Le Bernardin, I haven't been to any of those sort of French restaurants in Midtown in years because they're delicious, but they're not fun, right? And I want to have mm-hmm. a good time as much as I want to eat, uh, eat good food. Did you see the movie The Menu? I haven't. No. Do you know is what it, it is? Yeah. It's about a, you got to watch it. So it's it's about a Noma like restaurant, but it's on an island off the coast of you know South Carolina or something like that. And you know the, these group of people are invited on there for a very special meal. You take a boat there, um, and then the chef you know it turns out that they're all being there to account for their sins and bad deeds, um, and and it just gets crazier and crazier and crazier from there. But you know as as long as you don't mind some violence, uh, it is a great <laughs> is a great food movie. Which I definitely do not want to watch, but uh, thank you for that, Rex. Yeah, well, at least I scared you <laughs> off. Uh, Halita, how do people find Food Fix and, and what you're doing? Yeah, so you can find Food Fix at foodfix.co. Um, I have a twice-weekly newsletter on all things food policy, which maybe sounds like it wouldn't interest you, but my mother-in-law is not in food policy, and she thinks it is like the most interesting yeah, thing. I, I have like a it. lot of yeah. consumers reading it, a lot of folks in tech world. Um a lot of folks who, you know, just are interested in nutrition policy. Um, so you can sign up for the newsletter if there's a free version there. I'm on Twitter at H. Bottomiller um, and Twitter at Food Fix Co. And, yeah, so if folks are interested in these issues, I think it's a great way to sort of check in on them. Um, I still freelance for Politico, but I'm mostly focused on the newsletter, which has been great. Cool. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. 